You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 147 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name is Valerie Koo and I'm here doing this mini-sode with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? I'm, I'm all right, Valerie. It's Friday. I'm good. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always good on Friday. Yes. What are you doing this weekend? Uh, just, I just, well, I'll put it this way. The boys are both so exhausted from their first week back at school slash swimming slash all the other things that they do that I think we'll be doing not very much at all. Sounds like fun. Mm, and you? I'm going to my art class. Oh, how's your art class going? It's great. I love it so much. I do it on Saturday afternoons from 2 till 4, and I think it's just awesome. It's, it's just, I'm so... I'm just loving it. I didn't know. I mean, it's just accidental that I found this art teacher and um, it's been such a wonderful creative outlet. Yeah. Are you going to share some work with us at some point? Yeah, it's Will there pretty be photos of Val's fabulousness somewhere? <laughs> it's pretty rudimentary. I think the um, it, it can be potentially be a bit hilarious. The other day <laughs> I, um, I made My this. art tends to be hilarious, so I understand that. <laughs> My teacher and I, you know, sort of made this thing concurrently. Uh, yeah. He did his version. I did my version. I just, I did take a photo of them side by side because I just burst out laughing looking oh. at them. <laughs> oh. You know, but that's okay. Yeah. You know, I don't. That's all right. Um, you just got to do your best with it. Yes, that's right. Anyway, hmm. uh, we want to give a shout out to uh, Love Lovato means Amen. Lovato means Amen. I okay. That's true. I did not know that. Um, you have to so, look it up. It can be your word of the week. Yeah. All I think of when I think of Lovato is um, Demi Lovato singing Frozen, singing Let It Go. Mm. Oh, don't. Anyway. Oh, no, we've all got the earworm. You should <laughs> never have mentioned those words. <sighs> oh, dear. All right. <sighs> anyway, Lovato means amen, has left us a review on iTunes and has said, I recently started listening to podcasts to help pass the time whilst doing data entry, and I'm so glad I stumbled upon this one. I love every aspect of it, especially the writers in residence, which I find to be enormously insightful, not only in regards to the work of the authors being interviewed, but also in regards to the publishing industry as a whole. Hearing Val and Al talk about their reading and writing endeavours has inspired me to become more committed to my own writing. Mm. And last year, I undertook NaNoWriMo for the first time. It was such Ooh. an enjoyable experience and I want to say thank you to Val and Al for providing us with such engaging material each week. Keep up the good work. Oh, that's fantastic. Well done for undertaking your first nano. It's yes. always a fun experience, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm doing a little clap for your first I can nano. You. I'm, I'm still stuck on let it go in my brain, so I'm struggling to 
do anything really. I'm surprised I'm speaking and not singing. Why do people give it such a bad rap? I love it. Oh God, I love it too. But it's one of those songs. Honestly, I I bang it on in the morning some days when the boys are bickering and turn (laughs) it up really loud and then just stand there and sing it at the top of my voice. Oh my God! With the boys sitting there looking at me like, oh, mom, please don't do this. But I love it, and I crank it up in the car if they're annoying me as well. That is too funny. Mm-hmm. Well, this is one of our mini-sodes where we answer some listener questions. And, of course, if you do have a question for us that you'd like us to answer about writing and publishing, ideally, mm-hmm. then do email us, podcast at writerscentre.com.au. That's podcast at writerscentre.com.au, and we would love to answer it for you. But before we do that, we're going to kick off with a daily writing routine, um, which is the thing that we've been doing lately. I, I, I've discovered that Stephen King, uh, you know, he's got a lot of good writing tips. He's got some fantastic books about writing. Uh, but Stephen King writes every day of the year, including his birthdays and holidays. So every day, like weekends, everything. And he almost never lets himself quit before he mm-hmm. reaches his daily quota of, are you ready for this? His daily quota of, 2,000 words. Now, he, now I've got this off uh, a site called shortlist.com. We'll put the link in the show notes. But he works in the mornings starting around 8 or 8.30. Some days he finishes up as early as 11.30. So he's written his 2,000 words by then. But more often it takes him until 1.30 to meet his goal, which is still pretty good, like working from 8 to 1.30 and getting 2,000 words. Then he mm-hmm. has the afternoons and evenings free for naps, letters, reading, family, Red Sox games, and so on. But that's quite that's quite prolific, hey? Don't you think, Al? Two thousand words a day is yeah is 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 a, is a uh, well put it this way. It's not. It, I mean, he writes full time. He yeah. he um as he, you know he says he can sit there until he gets those words. It's it, 2000 words a day would be a massive undertaking for someone who was just starting out oh. because the pressure of that would be, I think too much. They're probably better off starting out with 200, but yeah. for someone like Stephen King, who's very practiced, 2000 is probably do. We, we, we've interviewed a few authors who aim for 2000 mm-hmm. a day. I, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but most of them tend to be fairly established, um, fairly established authors as well. Um, and he also, from memory, Stephen King is someone who doesn't write with a plan. He's someone who um, who kind of works it out as he goes along. And sometimes yeah. when you write like that, I think that the 2,000 a day is, is in some ways more achievable as well because you're kind yeah. of feeling your way through the story. You end up often with a lot of extraneous words um, that you then have to cut out. So, yeah, yeah. so it's probably, it may well be that as well, but, you know, hats off to him. I say go, Mr. King. I think that's such a great lifestyle. I would love to start at 8 or 8.30 and then finish at 11.30. How cool would that be? And then just have the rest of the day. Yeah, no, but he, you know, he's probably, when you say the rest of the day, he probably spends the rest of the day, um, you know, doing Stephen King author business. Well, yes. Don't you think? Yes, true. Which would be, I would imagine, a fairly massive undertaking given the size yes. of the Stephen King author empire. Mm, mm, mm. That's true. But maybe he has mm. minions to do that. Well, he probably does now, but I would say that he's, you know, like he's put in some hard yards over the years. 
Mm, yes, definitely. All right. So interested to it's always interesting to hear about other writers' daily routines. Always. You kind yep. of think, oh, should I try that? Or oh my god, I'm, I do <laughs> <laughs> I'm not waking up at 4:30 in the morning. No, that's not for me. All right. Let's move on to our listener questions. We have from Andrew. Andrew says. Uh, I came across your blog in iTunes, in an iTunes search a few days ago, and um, I now and now I listen to it on my way home from work in sunny Arizona. Oh, oh hello! How cool is that? Hello to Arizona. I, I oh, went yeah, to sunny see Arizona once, actually twice. Um, so Arizona is very sunny. Now, Andrew says I have two questions. Oh, okay. Number one. Number one. How did Alison approach world building for the Mapmaker Chronicles? And number two, very important question, do you guys support any rugby league teams? <laughs> well, we did say ask us anything, didn't we? We did mention that. Um, okay. So which would you like to which one would you like Why to do first? Why don't we huh? do question one first? How did Alison approach world building for the Mapmaker Chronicles? Really good question, Andrew. Right. Good question, Andrew. That is a great question. Uh, so, Alison approached world building for the Mapmaker Chronicles in much the same way as she approaches all aspects of writing, which is to say she made it up as she went along um, <laughs> and she researched as she went, which is kind of how I tend to work. So, basically what I did was I, I had, uh, because I had the inspiration for the Mapmaker Chronicles, um, it came from two uh, so it came, I, it came from two conversations I had with my son, who was nine at the time. One of those was a conversation about how fast space went, and we talked about the fact that nobody knew, no one knew what was the edges, so there was that feeling. So I had that feeling. And then we were also, it, the other conversation came from the following night, we were talking about explorers um, and how they mapped, you know, how, how was the world mapped. So I kind of had an idea of, you know, my world right from the start was, you know, sailing ships and um, sort of a it, – it's not set – it's not historical fiction on any level, but it's mm. set in that sort of medieval-inspired world. So um, I've always been interested in that – in history. I've done a lot of reading over the years about various things. So I kind of had a fair idea of what my world was before I began. Um, and then the rest of it came from um, – you know what happened along came from the plot and came also from from my characters if there was something that I didn't you know it, it I, I kept a a, um, a document open on my um on my computer at all times if I suddenly needed money and I had to come up with a, a system of money I wrote it down in that document so I had I could keep track of everything as I went what the rules were what the relationships were between different people what they looked like what they wore all of those kinds of things where they lived what those you know the size of those towns or villages what they looked like what the housing looked like I sort of I just made notes as I went um, and researched things that I didn't know such as you know sailing ship layout and, and assorted other bits and pieces about map making um, and various techniques I looked those things up as I as I went, I, I'm not someone who like does 8,000 hours of research and then tries to work out how to work that into a story. I write the story and I do the research as, as and when things arise. I'm like, I need to know more about what horses were called in medieval times, for example. So I went searching for that at the time and, and then I worked that into the story. So, um, 
it's it's a, it, it, people have different approaches to research. As I said, I've done a lot of reading across these areas, you know, just out of interest over many, many years. So there's a certain level of base knowledge that I had going into it. And if there was detail that I needed, I looked it up at the time. Um, so yeah, so my approach to it was quite organic and it, and it sort of, as new details would emerge, I would add them to my uh, series Bible. And then I would also have to think about, well, should this have actually been introduced earlier? This is stuff that also came out in the, in the uh, structural edit, obviously, um, you know, should, did the money system actually need to come in way down back there in chapter two, not in the first instance where money is mentioned in chapter five. So it's kind of um, that, that's sort of how world building worked, but it was an interesting thing with the map makers because um, I could see the world, you know, almost from the start, I could see Quinn, I could see his home, I could see where he lived, I could see how far he was. I had a map in my head of where he, you know, approximately was in the world and where he was going and what direction it was all going in. So, um, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's an interesting uh, process. And then it's a matter of how much detail does a reader need to be in the world without being overwhelmed by world building detail because that's yeah. the other thing it's a real balance between yeah. how much the reader needs to know and how much you want to show off about what you know about the world so yeah. it's um it, that's a balance too but my focus because of the age group I write for my focus is always on the story always and then I build the detail in and around as much as I need and I think we've talked before in the past where you know people talk about editing and how they've got to cut thousands and thousands of words my issue with editing is never really cutting it's adding detail where I've underwritten mm. it's like where I've assumed that the reader can see in my head and can see what I see as far as the world is concerned um, but in actual fact they probably need a little bit more description or something like that so that's um, that's often that layering approach is something that I that I do in the editing so the first draft is all about getting the story down and then the second draft is about layering in detail layering researching I mean sometimes I'll write the first draft and then I will just have in brackets on the side more detail about map making here mm. or I'll just leave a whole paragraph blank and put insert description of x y or z and I will go back and do that you know yeah. once I've got the whole cohesive manuscript together so you said a couple of times that you see this in your head, you could see where Quinn lived, you could see where all this kind of stuff. So did you at any point have to visually represent that like through a Pinterest board or did you collect any pictures or photos or anything like that so that you could actually see it on something, you know what I mean? Uh, no, I no, that's no, I didn't. But um, I know a lot of authors that do that, like keep mm. Pinterest boards for the second. So for my new series, um, it's kind of there's a there's a, a monastery involved. There's a medieval manuscript, like illuminated manuscripts, which mm. is something I've always loved and always been interested in. I keep Pinterest boards of that sort of stuff anyway right. because I love Ooh. those illustrations. Um, so those kinds of things are. You know, I, I, I'm again. What a lot of what I write comes out of what I'm interested in. Comes out of the things that I'm already, you know, yeah. my quirky little weirdness that I'm already interested in. Uh, map making and medieval manuscripts. I'm so cool. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, so I can sort of see them because I've read a lot about them or seen a lot of movies over the years about them. Or yeah. um, I went to see the Book of Kells when I live when I went to visit Ireland. Um, because I just, you know, have been always been fascinated by 
the idea of it. Um, yeah. So, you know, I've, I think... I think a lot of what people put into worlds is stuff that they're interested in. It, they set them in the ears they're interested in and the details that are really telling are often things that are just something that those people are passionate about. So you referred to the series Bible. Did, was that the document that you had on That's your computer? document, yeah. That actually yeah. turned out to, that ended up as being about 25 pages of wow. uh, detail about, you know, characters and which sailor had the big feet and which sailor smoked the pipe and who right. had this and who did what. What did it look like when they got off here? You know, things like that. I think you um, that you need to keep track of those details because otherwise you just end up, there's so much going on in a story um, that if you don't, if you can't have a quick reference, particularly when you're writing a series, mm. you need to keep track of exactly what you said in book one and yes. you don't necessarily, you know, what details you use. You don't necessarily want to have to read the read book one again to find out what it was yes. you said about the money or the whatever. Sure. Yeah. So, of course, the other all-important question from the <laughs> is... Do you guys support any rugby league teams? <laughs> well, I'll start that one off. <laughs> okay. And your answer um, is? Well, I, I'm sure that I'm extreme. I know I'm very different to Alison because I remember back in the day, many, many years ago, we used to sit next to each other at Clio Magazine and Alison always used to know who the hot NRL guys were and how, and she used to know which guys we needed to feature from which code. And I was like, there are codes. Anyway, <laughs> um, so I live in what is generally known as an AFL household because my partner is obsessed with AFL, which is not rugby league, it's Aussie mm. rules. And mm. um, he goes for the Swans. So that uh, so we, we we go for the swans, but I really, to be honest, could care less. Um, mm. In terms of rugby league, well, uh, we don't generally watch the games. However, my partner is a member of Manly because that is the nearest one. So he decided mm -hmm. to support some one somewhere local. Uh, but if I had to choose a team, I guess. From a child, I grew up in the Sutherland Shire, which meant we went for Cronulla. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's about the extent of my, um, you know, my my <laughs> involvement with rugby. I remember going for Cronulla, like not that I even knew what that meant uh, mm -hmm. when I was at school. And um, I, I'm, I've never admitted this to anyone, but... Um, uh, one day, because uh, they were, they must have been in the finals, and so we were told wear your team's colours the next day. So I had no idea what that meant. I didn't even ask my parents what that meant. So what it meant was you wore, you know, like a little ribbon of um, blue, white, and black, or whatever. That I did not do that. I turned up to school dressed like <laughs> in my team's colours. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and people are like, did you think it was musty today? <laughs> and I didn't admit it. And I get this because I had, the, you know, like Dunlop bobbies. Um, yeah. You know, the white shoes. And I thought, I wear your team's colours. So I've coloured them in blue, oh. white, and black. <laughs> really went to town, Val. That's yeah. so you. I'm not going to do this by halves. I'm going to go right in there. But it was wrong. Anyway, okay. t take it away, Alison. You will have a much better answer than me. 
Well, actually, uh, to be honest with you, I don't have a much better answer than that, really, in the sense that I don't actually support a rugby league team. I, I don't mind a game of football. Um, as you know, I've, I've, you know, as far as the actual personnel playing the football. Um, mm-hmm. But I, yeah, I'm not a mad supporter. However, I do live in a house full of boys mm. and my husband is a mad, died in the wall for his sins, Paramatic Eels supporter. Oh, Last won the grand final in about 1986, I think, and still waiting for another yeah. win. Um, and generally speaking, falling off the edge of the, of the competition every single year. But every year he lives in hope that this will be the year. So he is a Parramatta Eels supporter. Um, my oldest son, Book Boy, uh, is not a, fa- a footy fan on any level, so he just doesn't even bother. And my youngest son is one of those hilarious children who changes his team depending every year depending on who won the grand final. <laughs> so he's currently supporting the Cronulla Sharks, but we give it about four months before he switches, you know, switches teams. So oh we goodness. shall we shall see what goes on with him. But yeah, no. So technically, I guess um, the the real died in the wall supporter in the house is an Eels supporter. So I guess we are an Eels team, which the boys find very hard to take because you know they don't win that often. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Well, look, Andrew, thank you very much yeah, for that unusual for question. <laughs> um, but we now will turn it to uh, quite a different question, very much about writing and publishing. It is a little bit long, but I'm going to read most of it because it's kind of necessary. Okay. Uh, but it is a very interesting predicament and dilemma to be in. So... We have a question. Um, Hi, Val and Al. Love your podcast. This has been bothering me for some time, and I thought I'd ask your thoughts. I wrote the draft of a novel in 2010 when I lived in a remote area in a tiny country where people are affected by the issues I chose to focus on. I doubt I ever would have written the story had I not been living in that location, seeing firsthand some of the issues and getting inspiration and knowledge of landscape and history and problems and its rich cultural history of myth and legend that I've used as inspiration while writing my own world myth and backstory. I lived there for almost a decade, so it's my other home. I set my story there and across three other locations globally. It's fantasy-based in this world. It's in the future, and I created a world that has not been created in fiction before with its own mythology and specific set of problematic circumstances and a unique set of characters. I hadn't discussed it anywhere in printer online, and I showed it to just a handful of people connected with writing or the country in 2012 and 2013. In 2014, someone came up to me at a venue where I was giving a talk and we got talking about writing briefly and I learned that they were writing a story that, and they basically narrated my plot, setting, mythology, world problem and characters to me, including some of the specific details and the ideas in my myths and backstory and setting and characters that I created. I had no idea that she knew one of the people who I shared my story with. I was pretty shocked and I was also busy and had to talk to a lot of people so I couldn't stop to talk to this person who I met then for the first time. I also didn't want to say, that's my story and I couldn't remember her name at the time. I've since found out the person is quite close to one of the people who I shared my story with as a synopsis in 2013, though that person is more an acquaintance than a friend. Um, Earlier this year, I learned from our network that the woman who told me about the story back in 2014 is a freelance writer and is publishing this story, the one mentioned to me. I feel really hurt by the possibility that somebody 
has for all intents and purposes stolen my idea and world and maybe publishing it. I love my story, world and characters. I spent thousands of hours researching scientific issues to get it right for the story universe, not to mention history and travel to places. My life and work experience is embedded in it from particular sectors. What do I do if it is a version of my story that this person has used? What are the other avenues in such situations? What are the avenues in such situations? If there were no specific things mentioned or it wasn't about a tiny country most people don't go to or I hadn't known of mutual connection and the possibility my story was read, I think it was a coincidence like Liz Gilbert and Patchett's story discussed in Big Magic. But it was too similar, and the world is specific, that I believe my story was shared and I don't know what to do. I also really don't know why she told me. Personally, I don't care if this person's version is published and it's similar, but I'm worried about if it's the same and or interchangeable, but for names and places. What do I do with all my work and story that I love? What are the ethics and legal issues in such a situation? What if I look like the one who copied, if I ever published, when in fact it is my original idea? I conceived it quickly after seeing something that shocked me there, and it grew from there, but almost unchanged from what is now in essence, and wrote solidly for two years in a tiny room in a remote area and country where inspo hits. Do I lose rights to my idea if someone uses it first? I discussed it with published writers who said, get my final draft done anyway and keep writing. Woo! Oh, Val. Okay, wow. well, you just read all of that, so now you can tell me what you think. <laughs> There's a few things that I think. Number one, um, uh, yes, you should keep writing anyway, for sure. Mm. There is no doubt because you sound like you really love that story so much, you're really passionate about it, and it seems to give you joy, so you should definitely write it. Number two, um, it is your idea and and it came from you. It's kind of like if I um, and and you say yourself that your research, your your work, your history, you know, is embedded in it. Now this person does not have your research, your work, your history, that sort of thing. So it's all about the execution as well. Mm. So chances are because it actually came from you, somewhere in the core of you, you're gonna execute it better than this person anyway. Maybe that won't happen, but it's likely that's going to be the scenario, that you will execute it in a better way. Even if she did execute it, she she just might, she may well fall short of the mark, but I realize that that's not necessarily your biggest concern. One thing I will mention, and I'm not necessarily saying this applies to you because, as you said, it is really specific. Somebody came up to me the other day and said, um, look, I wrote this story about you know, X, I'm not, I'm not going to say what it is, but it had something to do with um, uh, wellness. And uh, the exact same story has just been published in this competing publication. And she was outraged. And she mm. was like, you know, it, it was she was absolutely, she just couldn't believe it. I read both stories and I just went, they're nothing like each other. <laughs> like they're vaguely to do with wellness, but essentially yeah. they're nothing like each other. So sometimes mm. we can see more into it. I'm not saying that this is your situation, but sometimes we can see more similarities than there really are. Until And until you actually read them both, because I read the, them both of those two articles, um, uh, until you actually read them both, you, you don't know how similar it is. It may be nothing like it at all. Having said all of that, write it and get it out there. Be the first one. 
Mm. It's kind of simple. Mm. Um, I know that's being a bit um, simplified or reductionist, but hurry up. Write it. Get it out there. Send it to... um, uh, yeah, editor. because we're talking about something like, you know, you say that you shared the story as a, as a synopsis. So, again, there's not a huge amount of detail in a synopsis, you know, spinning a synopsis out into a 90, 100,000 word fantasy yeah. novel, which is what we're talking about here. Um, the chances of it actually being the same story for you to execute it and for her to execute it over that number of words is really small um, for starters. I also suspect that as you write the full manuscript of 100,000 words that you, you probably find that your synopsis is going to change as you go. As Val said, your memories, your world building, your research, she doesn't have any of those things at all. Um, so that's, again, the similar how similar they are. Now, also... The woman is a freelance writer and is publishing this story. So, does that mean she's publishing traditionally? Is she self-publishing? Where, you know, where is this story going to appear? When is this story going to appear? That would be my next possible mm. question. Like, when is this story going to appear? Um, I like it's. I guess it's one of those things. It's a really. I, I think we, as writers, we we get so um, attached to our ideas and. Um, and I mean, one of the first things that anyone ever says to me when we do our freelance writing course is, you know, I'm I'm worried someone's going to steal my idea. I'm worried that if I send it off to an editor, they're going to write the story instead. Or I'm worried that if I talk to a freelance writer about it, they're going to they're going to steal the idea. And I think everybody's so worried about, you know, it's very very hard to to let go of an idea, and it's very very difficult to imagine that it's not going to be stolen by someone else. Um, and you know, in cases, you know, it it is. Um, I don't tend to talk about the I don't tend to talk about my novels until I've actually written them or, you know, that they're, they're actually ready to, to, to be sent off to a publisher or someone. It's not, I'm quite guarded with my ideas a lot of the time for that reason. And it's not because I honestly think someone is going to nick off with an idea, but I remember talking to an author I knew many years ago and she was quite a, um, she was, a, she was an absolutely lovely girl and she was quite fey, you know, she was sort of like whimsical. And mm. I remember her saying to me, I, she said, I never, ever talk about an idea because I just always feel like even once you've had the idea, it's out there in the world. Mm. Where, and then talking about it just simply helps the passage of that idea go further. You know, she, her idea, what her theory was that you, as soon as you had the idea, it sort of somehow transmitted itself out into the universe for someone else to have as well, unless you were careful. So, um, mm. because I think the other thing we need to remember is that, you know, ideas often come from circumstance. They come from what's around us. They come from, and you're not the only person that necessarily has that whole set of circumstances whirling around you at the time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, look, it's, it's a horrible feeling to think that someone has actually stolen your idea and the notion that she would come up to you at a talk and outline for you chapter and verse your own story um it's it's a shame you didn't have an opportunity to say to her where exactly did you get this idea this is extraordinary Mm. um would you know and I think it's it's one of those things but I yeah I I I really think that you just need to go forward you need to write the book Mm. um as you as you would see it written it's your idea it's your world write it how you need you know need to see it written and as Val said get it out there first um and and get it published I mean that's the way to go I think because whether this person has it published or not I don't know I mean it's it's a 
again, we have no detail on that, so it's hard to know. Yeah. And in answer to your question, do I lose rights to my idea if someone uses it first? The short answer is no. You don't. There. You don't. You have no rights to an idea anyway, as she has no rights to an idea. Um, ideas aren't copyright. So you don't lose rights to the idea, but what happens is a public if, if her book becomes super successful, a publish a publisher might see that oh well it's already been done, so we don't want to do it again. However, mm-hmm. her book A may not be super successful, and B maybe you should just be the one who gets out there first. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And also the execution is always going to be different. Like I yes. mean, you know. I just think that any any idea of your world that she would have got from a synopsis is not going to be a full picture of what you're trying to do. So, um, you know, there may be some similarities. I mean, publishers will be wary of similarities. There's no doubt that they will be wary of similarities. Um, but you can't copyright an idea. So mm. the details of the world and things like that are, are probably going to be a little bit more problematic. But I think that you, yeah, it's get there first, I think, yep. is the key. Get there first. Yeah. All right. So that's our mini-sode for this week. Where do we find you online, Al? Uh, you'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. Wonderful. And remember, you can ask your questions by emailing us, podcast at writerscentre.com.au and we'd love to connect with you on social media. I'm at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and I'm Valerie Koo. Just search for Valerie Koo and look for the one in Sydney. If you're on Facebook, we'd love to connect with you. Of course, also the show notes you can find at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au. Then thanks for chatting with us. Well, thanks for listening to us this week and we look forward (laughs) to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.